Welcome everyone to a special Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth event. We have with us the Home Secretary Priti Patel and in doing a special introduction we have our good friend Bob Blackman who's going to kick things off. Okay thank you Sunil for, for, for that kind of introduction and also to everyone out there who's uh, watching our proceedings uh, whether you're doing so live or uh, in a recording a recorded manner then, then uh, welcome. Um, it's my pleasure, great pleasure, to introduce my very good friend, uh, uh, the Home Secretary Priti Patel, who is going to speak to us tonight on a range of subjects and take, uh, obviously, some questions uh, from the audience uh, overall. Priti was elected at the same time as I was in, in May 2010 and has, a, has a, uh, an opportunity to uh, serve as International Development Secretary, but now as Home Secretary. That responsibility is an important one right across um, government, uh, both in policing and security, and all aspects of, of uh, uh, ensuring that the Home Office delivers, particularly on our immigration controls. Clearly, she's uh, got a, a great background um, uh, from the Commonwealth uh, through her parentage and through her life in this country, uh, and indeed often denigrated by uh, some people um, because probably she's just like me, a robust individual who believes in speaking her mind and she doesn't mind what people have to say about her because she's going to stick to what she believes in and deliver for the people of this country. So I won't take any more, more time. I'm looking forward to hitting, hearing Pretty and indeed hearing her answer your questions. Thank you for that, Bob. Um, I suppose I'll, I'll briefly start with how are you Pretty and have you had a chance to enjoy the easing of restrictions so far? Well, it's great to have the opportunity to join you all today. And Bob, Bob is a great, dear, dear friend. Um, so Bob, thank you as well for your introduction and your incredibly kind words. Um, there's been not much easing of restrictions and freedom from my side, because obviously the work of the Home Secretary doesn't really stop. There is a lot. Bob touched on some of these um, areas in his opening remarks. Um, you know, yesterday, positive day, really positive day for our country, and rightly so. Um, you know, I look back on the last 12 months and, you know, this time last year, we were all seeing appalling things, weren't we? We were seeing the pandemic really affecting all of us. Um, people, friends, family, um, people dying, just really tragic, really, really difficult time. So, you know, we are in spring now and it is, it is nice, actually. It is heartening, thanks to everybody, everybody one's endurance, taking the vaccine, of course, getting the jab, all of this matters a great deal, heroic rollout programme, which of course has enabled us to get back to living our lives. So um, I'm not going to say I haven't really done anything yet because I've been working, I'm always working and rightly so. Um, but, you know, I do look forward, particularly from my perspective, to just see my mum and dad very, very soon. Um, and I think all of us recognise that we've not been able to see loved ones for too long. And I think this is the moment where, you know, we all look forward to just to sort of seeing friends and family all over again. I want to go back uh, a few years um, and start to discuss about how you became involved in politics. Now, I understand you were a big Margaret Thatcher fan. Uh, did she play a big role in you wanting to become involved in politics? Well, I think, first of all, um, Margaret Thatcher was an incredible leader of our country. Um, look at what she achieved 
in the face of some some of the most adversarial hostility and you know I, I I'm not sure you know current generations today's generations actually realize what the state of the country in the 70s in particular and even her own battle to become leader of the Conservative Party and then to become our country's first female Prime Minister. She was a reformer. She was a dynamic character, um, you know, a force for good as far as I can see in terms of the liberation and the empowerment she gave citizens and our country. So I've always admired her. And as someone that grew up and watched British politics in the 1980s, um, seeing some of the most iconic people in politics lead our country in the way in which she did in the face of resistance, and that's institutional resistance in the state. Um, people, you know, much of the advice she was given as well, she was famously advised not to even touch the deal with the Falklands and lots, lots and lots of other areas as well. She was the embodiment of national leadership where she stood up for our values and she stood up for Britain. And yes, so she did inspire me and I saw much of that. I also got to meet her and know her a little bit and some of the people that served in her government as well. And they were people that were not faint hearted. They knew how to bring about change. And so, you know, for me, I, know I never actually wanted to become a politician myself. I've always been a grassroots activist, first and foremost. I've spent more than 30 years at the Grassroots Far Party. Um, and I consider myself to be a grassroots activist, first and foremost, um, because I do believe that, you know, to be the change that you want to see, you have to get involved at a local level um, to effectively be that force for good, a force for change. And, you know, should you then aspire to go further up, then there are lots of things that I think people can do. Um, but, you know, having inspirational leadership, which I think our country has definitely had and saw in the 80s under Margaret Thatcher, um, you know, that is that that basically sort of culminates into, you know, the conviction, determination and why I suspect, you know, both Bob and myself are as robust as we are. We will take the views and positions that we do as conservatives. We believe in holding up and standing up for our, you know, one nation conservative values and beliefs. And we're big advocates of that. I think a, a lot of people on our Conservative Friends of Platform will be very happy to hear you speak so highly of uh, Margaret Thatcher. We recently had one of our cabinet, a former cabinet members, Sir Malcolm Rifkind, on our, on our platform. And uh, he said equally glowing things uh, about her. Um, and I suppose it's always a, a good plug to mention, you know, we are the only party to have had uh, a female prime minister, in fact, too. Um, that said, what changes have you noticed um, in women in politics since you've become involved? And do you think we're making positive strides and seeing more women uh, playing an active role in politics? Yes, so it's not all terrible, although it's not as far from perfect, to say the least. Um, of course, there are more women actively in politics, and I don't just mean that on a national level. Um, in our party, we've made, I mean, it's great, you know, we have, I have amazing colleagues in the Commons, um, female colleagues, and also in the Lords, I should say, as well, um, highly accomplished individuals who haven't made politics just their life, they've accomplished and achieved all sorts of brilliant things professionally in their careers prior to coming to Westminster. And of course, um, it would be remiss of me not to give a massive shout out to many of our council leaders, county council leaders, district and borough leaders, and our councillors across the country who are women of strength, women of principle. And now to add to that list, 
we have more female police and crime commissioners, conservative police and crime commissioners across the country. We made 11 gains um, the week before last. We've got some brilliant, brilliant new conservative police and crime commissioners who I'm delighted to be working with. But there is a common strand here and there's a common theme that you know women can lead and do lead success successfully. But also with that and with that leadership, there's definitely more change that will come. And I have to say, I mean, I feel very, very strongly about institutional views and ideas about women and race and how we are treated and patronizing comments. I still think, sadly, there's far too much of that in public life and in political life. Um, sadly, I see it even now and it is not acceptable and it's not right. And, you know, I will continue to call that out. I really will. And I've, I've definitely experienced that in my time in government. Um, and I, I see, we see that in public life. We see it across the board as well. And, you know, there is so much more that needs to be done. And importantly, it should never, ever put any political, elected political um, politician, councillor, um, MP off from standing up for what they believe in and getting on and doing the job that they were elected to do. I definitely want to hear more about the uh, police and crime bill uh, shortly. Um, I think many of our listeners will have heard me use your name quite a lot with regards to the next topic, um, which is freedom of thought. I think especially within sort of ethnic minority groups, I don't love using the, the term ban, but non-white people, let's say. And sure. why I think I've been fairly vocal about yourself is that a lot of what you say and represent by sort of social definition if you like is almost wrong you know being a strong conservative Indian woman in itself draws a, a lot of criticism um, but even more so when you don't necessarily prescribe to being the notion of being on the left or sitting on the on the fence um, so it must seem like you have either really incredible levels of thick skin or real confidence in what you believe in and that kind of leads on to my next question is how do we get more sort of ethnic minorities if you like being more vocal uh, about their support for the conservative party I mean there seems to be more non-white people like voting conservative possibly ever before and I know shy conservatives can be applied to everyone but I think it's safe to say we're probably not as uh, vocal um, as almost being often there's a sort of fear of being attacked maybe within our own community so how do we almost combat that sort of stigma if you like? Well I think you've summed it up Sonal, very well um, I think instinctively, I say this just from an Indian community perspective, you know, we're not that forthcoming about speaking about our views publicly. I think we have to change that. I, I mean, first of all, I find some things just quite frankly objectionable. So applying labels to people is just wrong. I said this a long, long time ago, more than a decade ago. Um, even I think when I was selected for the Whitton constituency, you know, I just basically say stop applying, stop trying to pigeonhole me and stop trying to put a label on me. Um, but you know, the institutions across society seem to love doing that and they love stereotyping, they love generalizing. It is wrong. And collectively we should all say it is wrong. We should call it out. And linked to that, you've made a very, very important point. Um, yes, it is a fact. You know, and I, yes, I'm, you know, Indian origin, I'm proud of my origins and I'm proud of my roots. And I'm, I'm especially proud of my community. But yes, we, I've always said that the Labour Party in particular always took ethnic minority votes for granted. I came into politics saying that, and I will not refrain from that at all, um, because they were too busy taking our votes for granted, you know, going about and doing what they were doing. And then, of course, when we get elected, 
they want to absolutely vilify us for the views that we have. I get it all the time, but the left are wrong, you know, because, because I hold the wrong views. Um, they think I'm basically not Asian enough, which is an absolute, I just think that's racist. It is an absolutely racist assertion and generalization that the left make. And that's the Labour Party, by the way, when I say the left and all their associates. And I've, I've, I've experienced it myself. I've experienced it in Parliament. I've experienced it in the House of Commons. And yet they seem to, they're so prejudiced and so jaded in their views and their attitudes. They can't see beyond that. And yet they try to claim that they are the party that stands up for equality, etc. I've never had so much rubbish, quite frankly, from them. They speak in an offensive way. They are incredibly racist. They generalize, and that is why I would argue we must speak up and speak out against those generalizations. Um, otherwise, they'll carry on thinking they have a license to operate, and they simply do not. And also, they do not speak up. They do not speak for us. I think some guy I said recently uh, that we did a talk at Oxford University, and there's something similar, which is um, you know the the, the notion that uh, because of my skin color, maybe because of my surname, I should think a certain way to me is more racist than any racial slur uh, that you could think of. So and a, a good example, which kind of leads me on to my, my next point, um, is um, I, I remember recently discussing, I think your immigration policy not too long ago on the BBC, and we saw quite frankly, horrific headlines, uh, which was about abandoning your roots, your, your grandparents, all this kind of topic, uh, subject matters. and. You know, I, I don't think our listeners need to know, but you know, generally when there's a labor shortage, you relax immigration laws. That's you know, the 40s during the 80s. That's when my parents came in, and I'm sure there's a there's a, a number of people similar. And as a country becomes more prosperous, you you know, restrict immigration. Um, and you know, let's debate the policy. And you know, you know, that's a fantastic. You know, it's a great argument. Let's look at logic and facts. But no, instead, I think you received incredible levels of personal abuse. Um, and I think it's almost crazy that a London-born Home Secretary is under no obligation to create a liberal uh, immigration or asylum system just because of her own family's migration history. So I want to ask, how do you deal with this sort of abuse that you receive and can it be overwhelming at times? Yes, yeah, so I think first of all, the examples that you've just given, particularly when I launched our new plan for immigration, um, we were, to be quite frank, we should have done more to actually complain against the media organisations that were helping to promote all these kinds of dreadful, dreadful, it's abuse, it's offensive and it's racist. It is absolutely racist. Um, so I think, you know, there's always more that can be done and should be done there. Again, calling it out. Um, the other point to make, though, is that when organisations and individuals and media outlets and political parties start to indulge in such offensive racist slurs and attacks like that it just tells you that they're not in, not at all interested in pursuing the arguments um, that are being made and I, and I, I see that too much I, I experience that all the time and absolutely when we launched the new plan for immigration in March that, that was definitely what I saw and I still get I still get a lot of that but you've asked how, how you know, what, what do I do about it? I mean, they'd love me to just sort of break down and sort of say this is intolerable and give up. And that's why they do it, because they do it to try and make you feel absolutely awful about yourself and grind you down. And I'm not prepared to let that happen. And that's why they just all, you know, the amount of group thing that takes place, the, the mobilization of hatred and the level of attacks that come my way is all orchestrated because they do it to try and, you know, almost break me down. And that's wrong. That is absolutely wrong. It's bullying. 
it's intimidation, it's harassment. But you know, they think it's okay because of course I'm the wrong kind of Indian person. And that is just absolutely wrong. And that's, I bring it back to the point, this is exactly why we have to stand up and confront this and call it out. I think there's, there's so much hypocrisy there. And I think it's safe to say, you know, you're probably up there in terms of receiving the most abuse from the far left and woke social media. I mean, I know we must take what we see on social media with a huge pinch of salt, considering when you look at the last 2019 election, the top four trending hashtags were all anti-conservative and pro-Labour. Obviously, the result was Labour's worst election since 1935 and us Conservatives getting a, a massive majority. That said, uh, there is a, a far left movement in the UK. Um, it's hard to tell if it's growing or if it's just getting louder from the same people. Um, do you think we as Conservatives can do more to try and reason with them? Or do we accept that they will always be a sort of intolerant group of people who won't listen to reason? Well, I think um, you're speaking in particular about sort of the amplification through social media. Um, first of all, I mean, I, I speak now as probably I am the most trolled politician in the United Kingdom, which I think tells you everything you need to know. Um, and of course, you know, they, the, the people behind it, they know who they are, those that are organising it and orchestrating it. Shame on them absolute shame on them because clearly they have no values basically in the way in which they pursue individuals so relentlessly um, but on social media platforms first of all they have a responsibility themselves to stop hosting all this vile um, bigoted racist and defensive content and quite frankly it is threatening content because I've had death threats and all the rest of it through it um, as have many others any many other colleagues as well but it is disproportionately directed at conservatives, which is just appalling, absolutely appalling, which is why we will always do more to, you know, stamp this out through legislation. There's some legislation coming forward as well. I don't think you can reason with people like this at all. Um, and again, I also think, you know, if we disproportionately spend all our time on them, that's, that's what they'd like. They'd like to stop us from carrying on and doing um, the work and the job that we're here to do, which is, of course, serving our amazing country and serving the majority, the hardworking, silent majority across the United Kingdom that actually support the government and back our policies. So we won't be deflected by these awful people. We absolutely won't, because this is the people's government and we will continue to focus on delivering on the people's priorities. I think that, that kindly works well on our sort of next subject matter, which is something that's been discussed quite a bit on our platform, which is identity politics. We, we had uh, John Howard, the, the former Australian Prime Minister, and uh, the, the current Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormick, both talk in detail about the, the problems with identity politics. One of my favourite quotes from that session with John Howard, I'm probably not going to say it as well as him, was uh, about talking about small businesses. Um, he, he said... Um, Politics for him was a platform to appeal to people uh, no matter where they come from. And he used uh, an example of small businesses, which appeals to men, women, Indian background, Italian background, Middle Eastern background, anyone and everyone. Um, and his kind of concern now, which is what he's seeing in particular from the left movement, is this you almost identify the identity um, first. So you identify the, the profile of whether it's Indian, uh, a black person, whatever. And then you try and create policies for that uh, section of society. Um, you could argue our current Labour opposition are pursuing a very similar identity style uh, politics focus with their gestures and, and actions. Do you believe identity problems 
uh, identity politics even is is a growing problem firstly in the uk and generally across the world because we're seeing it especially in america and australia growing and it seems like in the uk we are too yeah i think that's right i mean we are seeing it across america america famously so no question about that i mean politics should be for the you know the public basically in terms of delivering for them and i just i also think it's so linked to the leftist move, leftish movement as well um you know absolutely trying to divide people rather than trying to bring people together you know bring countries together and actually serve the silent majority it's divisive politics and we're seeing that we, we are seeing that across the world um i think it's fair to say it's become standard um, practice for the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. Um, we also see it, um, you know, within the nationalist cause as well. And, and that's not helpful because at the end of the day, it is the silent majority that, you know, want to be heard, not, not a vocal minority that want to sort of, you know, pursue certain agendas and identity politics and issues and, and, and causes of that nature, which can effectively, um, you know, if government end up yielding and bending to them could absolutely move the government's agenda in the wrong direction we're not like that we're sticking on the priorities our manifesto commitments and the priorities that effectively got us elected because we want to deliver for the British people um, I think uh, cover that quite well I want to talk about the, uh, the fantastic police and crime bill that you proposed and it's something that again something we've talked quite a bit about on this platform is policing you know we, we felt like uh, the police recently especially on social media general um kind of platforms have been receiving you know quite horrible abuse and we were seeing it some of the protests that have been going on recently um what they've been subjected to and some of it you know you, you could argue there's bad people in society, whether they're accountants, lawyers, doctors. I, I mean, there's doctors who every year across the world get sent to jail for, you know, deliberately killing patients. We don't go to hospitals hurting abuse at doctors, shouting defund the NHS. Um, but it seems like it's OK to do that to the police now, because that seems to be a common theme that we're seeing. Um, however, we now have the introduction of your new police and crime bill. It'd be great to hear more about that and ask some of our listeners to um, hear the sort of uh, gist of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's not all right. It is absolutely not all right to abuse anyone. And it's certainly not all right to abuse police officers. I mean, I've seen in my time as Home Secretary just the most appalling abuse of our police officers. And I don't, I don't even want to share the graphic details of an officer who was nearly blinded about three weeks ago through, through violent protests. I mean, it's just horrendous. And the thuggish minority, and they are thugs, they should feel the full force of the law um, for the assaults and the abuse that they dish out and perpetrate. And that is just one component of this police crime sentencing and courts bill, and um, where we are going to put into law a police covenant. Amazing that we haven't had a police covenant before, but I have said I went into the, well, when I became Home Secretary, I said, we're gonna bring a police covenant forward and we've done all the work and we've developed this now. We're gonna put it into statute and it's all about police protection police wellbeing, we're going to double the sentences, so from 12 to 24 months, two years, for anyone who assaults an emergency worker. So that's police, fire, ambulance, the whole service, um, blue light service. Um, but within this as well, there's much more we need to do in terms of giving police powers to tackle areas of policing, crime, criminal justice system that is a little bit outdated, so giving them the support that they need. 
protest is a very good example. We saw the most appalling protests at the weekend um, where people not only assaulted police officers, but, you know, we saw and we saw racism, you know, racism um, and anti-Jewish rhetoric on the streets of our great capital city. Um, so we want to give the police more powers in terms of dealing. That wasn't static protest, but we've seen static protests basically by extreme organisations that use guerrilla tactics to threaten people, to hurt people, to put people in harm's way. Um, it costs the police an extraordinary amount of money. So we want to give them the powers to be able to remove, remove the protests and stop these protests and take the right kinds of actions that they need to do. And then of course, sentencing is so, so important. I'm unapologetic at the fact that we need tougher sentences. I want the book thrown at the most vile, vile criminals, the murderers, the rapists, the paedophiles. Um, and that's what the sentencing component part of this bill will do. There's so much more um, in this bill um, that is there. But I, I just want to conclude my comments on this bill by saying two things. Number one, the Labour Party voted against this bill, which tells us everything that you need to know. They are soft on crime, they're soft on sentences, they're not with the majority, the hard-working silent majority that want law enforcement. You know that they expect that we should have tougher sentences and all the right things bear in mind we are putting record levels of investment in policing 15 billion quid into policing the other point to make is that they do not support the police you know when i think back to last summer and the protests that we saw it was the left it was a labor party that were calling for defunding of the police that's shameful that tells us that they do not believe in law enforcement they do not believe in upholding the law I mean, that's an absolute stain and a scandal. It's no wonder we elected 11 more Conservative Police and Crime Commissioners because the British public know exactly which party in government is on their side and will back the police. And it's the backing of the bill, it's the backing of the police that is just so, so important. And I think that just puts every argument to bed, quite frankly, in terms of, you know, who is the party of law and order in this country? It's us, it's a Conservative Party. And we're gonna be doing so much more, not just to back the police, but make sure that we have a criminal justice system that gives the public confidence when it comes to sentencing, when it comes to crime, when it comes to law and order. I think it would be great uh, once we can sort of read more about this bill. It sounds fantastic. And I'm sure many people on our platform will be uh, delighted uh, that, that it's coming in, into notion. Um, you, you raised um, a fantastic point there, sort of about anti-Semitism, um, and it, it's something that uh, you could argue the Labour Party haven't really helped with. And um, there is a sort of notion that maybe because anti-Semitism isn't necessarily as trendy or as cool as other minorities to talk about in terms of the appalling um, racism that a lot of Jews in this country do face. Um, it, We've seen some, you know, horrible things that happen in, in London over the over the um, weekend. Um, do you think we need to almost acknowledge that anti-Semitism is a thing? And just like I said, it's you know, it doesn't necessarily get the same marketing package as other movements. Um, but it's something that you would like to see, maybe almost a bipartisan support, where it be from the Labour Party, Lib Dems, and have this kind of universal coming together and actually acknowledging that there is some anti-semitism well, in this country well absolutely i mean first of all anti-semitism is racism so there's no place for it whatsoever i mean my, my view on this is so firm and it's so clear it is thoroughly unacceptable and it is racism and it is you know linked to the intimidation 
the harassment of the Jewish community, um, a community that we we should respect enormously, quite frankly. Um, it's, it's no fact I grew up with the Jewish community in Hertfordshire. I mean, I am just appalled. I did not grow up alongside the Jewish community where I experienced and saw the levels of hatred and anti-Semitism that I see today. You know, and even when I was growing up, I was not exposed to the type of racism that I experienced today. And that tells me everything we need to know about the people behind this racism and anti-Semitism. And they are all from the left and, you know, associated organisations. Um, and quite frankly, we should, we should not be, this should not be existing in today's society. And so the people that are responsible, quite frankly, should, should be held to account. Um, the, you know, and the lack of, there, there obviously there is one political party, the Labour Party, that have been culpable have been responsible for this it is a stain on them and it's a shame it is an absolute disgrace and a shame and i will say this within conservative circles we are so united when it comes to standing against anti-semitism and standing against the hatred the intolerance the intimidation that we have been seeing and also i would add the physical assaults and abuse that the jewish community have been enduring it is an absolute disgrace, it really is. Which is why I will always say, the police need to deal with this. The police absolutely need to deal with it. They need to find the perpetrators. They need to prosecute them. And then alongside this, as I've already said, I expect the social media companies to take action. I expect them to support the police when it comes to take helping them to put the evidence base together so that the police can take action and the right charging decisions. This is absolutely unacceptable. Um, and we as conservatives will always stand um, with the Jewish community against hatred and against anti-Semitism and the racism that we've seen. I think um, it leads quite well to a, a, a positive, uh, if you like, a, uh, story in the recent weeks, which was probably the, the election results that we saw at the start of May uh, across the UK. Um, we, we saw massive conservative gains uh, ac across the country. Um, what were your sort of post-election thoughts? Was, was that very much what you sort of expected? Uh, I can imagine it was a, a happy reaction, at least initially. Well, first of all, the result is um, the results that we achieved is effectively the result of everybody's hard work. I mean, we should never lose sight. You know, I spoke about the grassroots earlier on. That's our party at the grassroots. That's our campaigners. That's our candidates who worked incredibly hard, supported by our party at the centre and the infrastructure around. Um, I'm really, really proud to have campaigned for our police and crime commissioners and also many other Conservative Council candidates around the country. And I pay tribute to all of them. I made it quite clear on the crime front I wanted, I need more Conservative PCCs to work with. This whole issue that we saw of Labour PCCs who were just appalling, independents that were not representing their um, you know, local constituents effectively as well in a robust way when it came to dealing with crime, antisocial behaviour, all the issues that blight communities. This is now a new chapter when it comes to our police and crime commissioners who will be working alongside a Conservative Home Secretary to get crime down. That is our objective. We've got plans for crime, we've got crime strategies. I expect more work, to, I expect our chief constables, our commissioners to deliver on neighborhood policing, building confidence around policing and delivering against the crime issues that obviously blight communities. So we're robust about that, I am. I went into the campaign saying this. I've spoken to the candidates during the campaign, I've spoken to them since. 
they will they are elected and they're elected to deliver so i'm really proud of them but the hard work starts now it really does we are absolutely committed to getting crime down and it'll be a joint effort we are one conservative team and this is what we will be doing over the months and years ahead I think that leads again also quite well to the Commonwealth being a conservative friends of the Commonwealth platform. Uh, unsurprisingly, we're going to ask a, a Commonwealth question. Um, what, what do you sort of see for the future of, of the Commonwealth? Do you think it will play a, a big part in global Britain? Well, the Commonwealth, of course, is I think it's deeply in our hearts for all of us. And I don't mean that in a sentimental way. It's part of our DNA as Conservatives and it's actually part of our DNA as the United Kingdom. Um, you know, leadership of the Commonwealth, clearly, um, but also with Her Majesty's leadership, you know, the strong, the strong ties, historic roots that we have established are just phenomenal. So in terms of the future, the future is incredible, quite frankly, partly because, you know, we've, we've left the European Union. We are able now to forge, I, I, I say this with, you know, degree of gusto, we can forge ties in a way in which we were almost pushed back from um, over the last 40 years or so, um, because we were restricted. So those shackles have gone. And this is now a time to, I, I should be careful in my choice of words, you know, one day coming out of, um, you know, the new, new restrictions being lifted. But this is our moment to embrace all Commonwealth countries um, in a way in which we build greater open links um, we strengthen our people-to-people -people ties, which from a Home Office perspective is just so important. Look at the work that this department has done with India, for example, in the last few weeks, very publicly, on people ties, on the living bridge, on, mobi on mobility, all the stuff that we've not done before. Um, and, you know, we should ask ourselves, well, we don't need to ask ourselves why, we know why. Um, that was all restricted. But that, that is our future. The future is a positive one on people, trade, um, economy. I also think in terms of women, girls, skills, empowerment, just so many areas where, you know, the Commonwealth will continue to not just grow, but I think flourish and show the Commonwealth as a united force for good in the world, which means that, you know, there, there is, I, th I just think this is going to be a, a great era of opportunity for us. Unsurprisingly, I, I agree. Uh, being a uh, part of the Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth. Um, I think you, you kind of touched on it there, I, and I was going to bring this up earlier, was um, I think one of the things I think many people love about Boris is that honesty and not so much being so bothered for kind of political correctness. Um, and I, it seems like every day that there seems to be a new phrase or words that we shouldn't say, and, or, and often as Conservatives, we tend to be the ones who are blamed. And despite being, I think, relatively young, I find myself looking up things I shouldn't say or words I can no longer say or no longer uh, it's uh, um, okay to say on social media. Do, do you think political correctness is, is a bit of an issue today in, in the UK? Well I think we all have to express ourselves conscientiously you know and I think I'll be very candid in politics that's that's just a fact of life it really is um, but actually if I can just say something because you've mentioned Boris I mean he's an incredible leader he is absolutely an incredible leader of our country. Um, you know, and I think we all pay tribute to the way in which he's led us through the pandemic, no doubt about that. But also the human touch, because in politics, you know, to, you've asked about political correctness. Well, actually people want to engage with a politician that is authentic. 
and they can relate to. And I would definitely say that we have that. Um, no question about this with, with Boris. Um, and that resonates in his, obviously, with the leadership that he shows. But it does come also to the heart of your question. Um, you know, the public express themselves in various ways and means. And politicians, you know, also do. Um, in a way in which connects with the public. So I think we, you know, we, we shouldn't be hampered. While we can always feel conscientious and rightly so, we'll be diligent about what we say and how we present ourselves. Um, you know, we are human beings at the end of the day and we are, we are authentic to our views and beliefs. I think it's, it's interesting you mentioned uh, authenticity there because that was one of the things we had to Linton Crosby on our platform. We spoke very highly of, of yourself and uh, he also mentioned how he believed that what Boris was very strong at was that he had authenticity, which is more important um, more than ever. Um, and uh, he, he spoke, yeah, uh, very highly uh, of, of yourself when we when we had him on our uh, a platform. Um, I think it, it kind of also we were discussing Commonwealth. I think it'd be good to sort of just uh, quickly as we wrap things up to talk about Kanzuk. It, it's been something that's been discussed again. Uh, in detail, mm -hmm. of course, it involves four Commonwealth countries. Um, do, do you think that will play a, a, a big role in the future? Do, do you see closer ties with those three other Canada, well, New Zealand, well, Australia? Look, what, I, what I would say on this, um, you know, as a sort of final point, is that there is, I mean, look, the, the scope for new opportunities and new partnerships is just unlimited now. It really is. And all credit to actually colleagues in government and, and, and the prime minister as well, because he's led so much of this directly. You know, global leadership is about the type of relationships you have um, with trade partners or potential trade partners or how you can create new partnerships. And of course, that is what he's leading right now. So this isn't all going to happen in the next five minutes. But absolutely, these, these platforms, these partnerships, they are coming together. They are absolutely coming together. They are part of, you know, the workings of government. Um, so, you know, we will continue to support them, grow them, um, encourage them as well so that we can drive the right outcomes because we'll all benefit from a trade perspective. We'll all benefit from, you know, stronger ties. We'll benefit from the stronger ties on the trade side, the benefit from stronger ties on the people side. And there'll be so many other opportunities at a bilateral level or country to country as well as through big partnerships. Fantastic. Well, I know you're really busy, Pussy, so thank you for your time today. We really, really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners have thoroughly uh, enjoyed what you've had to say. Um, so yeah, once again, thank you for your, your time today. So now, thanks to you, thanks to everyone that's been on the call. And I think more importantly, um, thank you for all your support that you give us as well, that enables us to do our jobs. You know, I know you're all out there campaigning and have been, um, you know, working hard, as I said, at the grassroots, because it's that hard work that pays off, pays off and helps us to deliver the results that keeps us going, basically, as a party in government. So thank you. It's great to talk to you all. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Thank you.